There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what William Stryker does for stocks and shares in Adamantium. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick and James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion of Brian Singer's 2003 movie, X2. That is the actual title. It's on the title card and it's on the IMDb and I'm sticking with it. Sorry, do you mean X2 X-Men United? No, I just mean X2, which is on the title card and I'm sticking with it. Okay, because I watched X2 X-Men United and I insist we refer to it as that. Seb, did you watch watch X-Men 2? Uh, I watched a UK DVD (laughs) that on the title, that doesn't, literally doesn't have the name of the film on the disc and I don't have the case because our DVD cases are in storage and our DVDs are in a wallet. And seriously, the two X-Men films, you can't tell which is which because uh, they just have a big X. (laughs) But on the title card of the movie as it played, it said X2. X2, that's what we're going with, X2. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain the comic book concepts that as a movie fan I just don't understand. And this week, you guys, this is coming from uh, one of your comic book recommendations for the last podcast. (laughs) Who is the supreme intelligence? Side question, is he the greatest floating head in comics? (laughs) Okay, so the supreme intelligence is a computer that runs the Kree society, or sometimes does anyway. Um, oh, so he's not—he's not—he's not a Cree. He's a computer. He's a computer that was built by the Cree. Okay. Um, right. I think I could be wrong. I think he has like formed by the sum of their intelligences. Um, I'm not entirely sure about that. Like, he's one of those characters who comes up in a lot of different sort of interpretations. Sometimes he's called Supremo. Um, okay. But mostly he's just called the Supreme Intelligence. Supreme or Supreme God. <laughs> yes. Is he a bit, is he a bit naff? Uh, no, he's in some good stories. Is he? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> I mean, because he showed, he showed up in that crossover that you recommended. And I enjoyed the comic, but I just didn't care about this big floating green Medusa head. Yeah, I think that was more like the status quo of the time was he were he had been slightly marginalized and was attempting to regain his position so it was kind of an ongoing meta arc thing right. um it does it you know is vaguely upset with uh the earth and occasionally he 
Because, like, you know, the Inhumans were sort of born out of the Kree as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like, he's got some interest in the Inhumans as well, so he turns up in that context sometimes. Right. Do do I need to care about him, do you think? Nah, because, like, the Kree are like the shit scrolls, basically, so... Okay, but, I mean, that's the, the Kree are what the MCU has, and the MCU has Inhumans, and it has Guardians of the Galaxy, and so... We're prob- you know, I don't know. Are we going to see more Kree? Are we going to? Yeah, could could the... we? Could we see him turn up? We could conceivably. Yeah, it's not. It's not likely. I don't think just because he's a bit of a. You know, he's not cool enough to be worth seeing in any particular context. He's not like a big cosmic deal like Galactus or um, Thanos or anything like that. No, he's more like the Kree counterpart of Lelandra. Okay, okay. Um, and so the side question, is is he the best floating head in comics? I mean, there must be better ones. I mean, Ego is technically a floating head and he's a lot better. Is it Modok, the... Uh, Modok is a better... Yeah, he is a better floating head. Because he al- he's also always looked terrible to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's part of his charm. Don't worry, you'll okay. read some good Modok comics eventually. <laughs> Will I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we'll move on now to our comic book movie and TV news segment. And um, if you were listening to our mini-sode last week, uh, you'll be familiar with a few of these news items. But there's there were some pretty like big things that showed up in the past week or so that we thought we should all dig into as a trio. Um, and the first one, well, we, we have to start with Hellboy, don't we? Which is being rebooted without Guillermo del Toro and Ron Perlman. Um, David Harbour is going to play Hellboy and it's going to be directed by Neil Marshall um, and it's going to be an R-rated horror movie. I was just going to say, it, it has spawned all-out war in internet movie and comics discussion. <laughs> it's like you have to pick a side. Are you are you on the Del Toro side or the Mignola side? And you've got the Del Toro side fervently arguing that um, so little loyalty has been shown to Del Toro. Del Toro and Perlman wanted to make a third film. You've had that tweet from Jeffrey Tambor. Yeah, I saw that. And I've yeah. seen some people retweeting that Jeffrey Tambor tweet and going, oh, this is amazing and hilarious. And I've seen other people retweeting it and going, this is terrible. It's Mike Mignola's character. You can't say that, that Del Toro is more important to the character than Mignola. It's his vision. And it's like the the, the nerd internet has been rent asunder by this debate over... Uh, mid-range comics property that was a mid-range movie property. <laughs> I've totally missed all this. <laughs> but you, you've got to pick a side, James. It's 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 the Civil War. You, you have to pick a side. Yeah, well, uh... so the, the Jeffrey Tambor tweet was something along the lines of how he definitely wouldn't be returning for more Hellboy because he was going to be loyal to Guillermo and Ron. And it is it it, it does seem like a weird situation. A- aside from all of the, like, the personal egos involved and all that kind of thing, I said in the minisode, I would have quite liked to have seen a Hellboy 3 from Guillermo del Toro and Ron Perlman finishing off that trilogy. Um, but equally, a Neil Marshall film with David Harbour playing Hellboy sounds interesting to me. That sounds like a movie that I would pay my money to go and watch. So I I kind of feel like it's one of those situations that's, that's win-win and lose-lose <laughs> at the same time. Like, we, <laughs> you can't have both of these movies, unfortunately. And the fact that we're getting one of them is uh, is better than we had a week from a week ago, you know? What I will say is that I would rather be getting Pacific Rim 2 than Hellboy 3. So yeah, I'd, I'd rather Del Toro was in that universe. <laughs> Del Toro <laughs> doesn't direct anything, though. Like, that's his thing, is being announced as a director and then not making a film. 
Yeah, it's <laughs> true. There is that. In the, in oh yeah, because that was of, yeah. You you went in the ranking mildly of, viral, James. Didn't you? <laughs> in the ranking of those films that Guillermo del Toro has not directed, um, I would still have liked to have seen his Hobbit movies the most. Um, <laughs> and but personally, I'm I'm on the other side to you, Seb. I'd rather see more Hellboy from Guillermo del Toro than Pacific Rim. I don't I don't think I care about more Pacific Rim at all. I, I wonder what's happened to that Justice League Dark movie. He was, that's another one for the Guillermo del Toro doesn't direct films. Well, Doug, Doug Lyman's doing it now. Having having yeah, shuffled Gam, Gambit off his plate. Yes. Maybe Guillermo del Toro should be announced as the director of Gambit. Then you've got, just got the perfect fusion of Why a movie not? that will never happen. <laughs> um, I mean, but generally, do do you guys are you guys looking forward to this, David Harbour and Neil Marshall? I mean, um, I it, I wasn't a massive like a I wasn't a massive fan of the original Hellboy movies, so you know any alternate like the characters inherently are good are good, you know. There's no reason not to do another uh, another film with those characters. It's just I wonder if there's much of an appetite for it in the public. Like the the Guillermo del Toro films that... didn't set the world alight, and I think that's gonna like the comic doesn't either. As you know, as good as it is or whatever. So I'm not. It just it seems a bit like they're gonna put a lot of effort into this and just not find much of a return on it. Hmm. The thing that concerns me is the um, the the insistence right up front that it's going to be R rated, and I mean just generally that thing of yeah it's going to be R rated just you know it's not something that appeals to me anyway. Like not nothing wrong with films that are only for adults, but it's that upfront assertion that feels quite adolescent to me. And I wonder what about Hellboy really needs to be like. Obviously, it's it's about demons and hell, and it's got a horror bent to it. But even the comics, you know, they, they can be a bit, like, gruesome or whatever, but they're not... I mean, I, I would think of it as more in the tradition of, like, EC horror comics and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, I don't see what about Hellboy needs to be R-rated and suddenly become incredibly violent and scary. And actually, one of the things that I liked about the original films was that they were about this subject matter and were a bit creepy but didn't have to go in that direction it feels to me like if you're saying oh we're going to do an R-rated Hellboy movie first things that, the first thing that pops into my head is that it's going to be another Blade <laughs> I mean well I mean Blade has a different different reputation in the outside world than it does on this podcast as we, <laughs> as we found out back on our first Blade episode we're definitely getting a guest in for our Blade 2 episode I can promise you that in advance <laughs> Um, but yeah, I I wonder whether just in terms of needing to differentiate it from the previous version kind of asks for an R rating. And personally, it's for me, it's not, does a Hellboy movie need to be R rated? It's, does a Neil Marshall film need to be R rated? And I think probably for him to do his best work, yes. Um, I mean, I don't know how familiar you two guys are with Neil Marshall, but obviously he kind of uh, broke through with The Descent and Dog Soldiers. And since then, I think probably like his other films have been less well known than his TV stuff. I mean, especially his work on um, on Game of Thrones, where he directed one of the yeah. Very I did best see that what, that one report referred to him as as the man behind Game of Thrones. <laughs> and I thought, what you've done is you've looked at his IMDb page. You've seen Game of Thrones on there because he's directed like two or three episodes. Two episodes, of it. yeah. And admittedly, he's done significant episodes of it, but to call him the man behind, it's like, don't don't let algorithms write you new stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, uh, yeah, uh, the, I think particularly Blackwater, which he directed, is one of Game of Thrones' best ever episodes. Um, and uh, he's he's got a he's got a horror, he's got a action, and yeah, I, and and we haven't even spoken about David Harbour, who we were rattling on about for weeks in in relation to the well, that cable was my, my my reaction was Joe's going to have feelings about this, <laughs> because... <laughs> and and my feelings are I refuse to come down on one side or the other. I I I feel conflicted, but I'm looking forward to this film. You you are Spider Man in the Civil War of Hellboy. Yeah, I just want everyone to think I'm cool. I do think <laughs> I do think I'm more interested in this than I would have been in a third Guillermo del Toro Hellboy. I'll say that much. Well, there we go then. So- I think I think now because I think the time I think I think there would have been a time for a third del Toro and Pullman movie, and I think we've passed it now. So yeah, probably let yeah. someone else have a go. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, we'll move on to our next piece of news. And um, Seb, I know you were particularly excited about this one. Um, we'll do a little bit of a TV roundup for anyone who um, missed the mini-sode after this. But the big piece of TV news last week was, was that there is a Judge Dredd TV show in development. It's going to be um, Mega City One, and it's going to be focused on the kind of the entire city with Dredd as a lead character. So the implication being that this will have a wider scope than the Dread films uh, either of them did, and the message was we're going to add back in the satire. What do you guys think? I even though I'm not a massive Judge Dread fan, I'm actually looking really forward to this. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, my my main concern is that I'm not actually sure it's actually. Yeah, that's happen, the problem, yeah, isn't but... it? Like, it's probably not going to happen, especially because. The, well, they've the said way that like, it was they announced, won... though was. They announced it like kind of with no commitment, no network attached or anything like that. Just that the producers are working on it, and but it sounded mm. like it had a lot of financial backing behind it. And it was announced in Entertainment Weekly as like a big exclusive news story. So they they were definitely trying to make a big splash with this. I mean, the fact that they've said they want to make it the most expensive British TV show ever, and that they're aiming for a budget of a million pounds an episode, makes me think <laughs> they don't have any grounding for it to actually exist they've just set up a studio and said we're going to make this without any understanding of how that actually happens mm. and uh, and i mean actually i would have when i first saw it announced my initial thought would be that it would be quite <laughs> not a ridiculously over the top and expensive thing and that actually they've looked at it and gone well do you know if we if we're never going to be able to do um mega city one and the judges in the ridiculously over the top expansive way that some of the more famous, like we're never going to do the cursed earth, you know, you're never going to get to do those big, massive scope stories. But equally, you can do a lot with a TV show in terms of redressing sets to do a lot of interior, you know, like <laughs> done in one stories about the judges in Mega City One in quite confined spaces, dealing with little individual cases. The kind of little individual stories that you get dotted throughout the 2000 AD run in amid all those big longer story arcs. Um, I was just reading, I was flicking through some stuff from the early 90s um, the other day, and there was a Garth Ennis one. Uh, I think it was a Garth Ennis one. It was about a, a radio DJ who'd been found in his apartment having shoved his head into a garbage disposal unit. <laughs> and basically the the reason for it was that he, he had developed latent psychic powers and had, had kind of 
um, his brain had picked up the energy of the millions of people in the city who absolutely loathed him because he was this cheery radio DJ, um, and that psychic energy had persuaded him to kill himself, and that, and that solved the mystery. Um, it's just you know li- little stories like that with with that kind of black humor edge a lot of the time. Which, as you've said, you know if they've said they are going to bring because that was the, the thing I noticed with that Entertainment Weekly report, and I said this on Twitter, but Americans writing about Judge Dredd and leaving out the word satire <laughs> when when describing it. Um, because I mean, you know, there are, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of dread stories that you would read and you can read and, you know, some of them are designed to be enjoyed on a surface level. Like it's wrong to say that like, you know, dread is the villain and you root against him because he's this authoritarian power. There are plenty of story, dread stories that work on a non-ironic, non-satirical level, but the overall bent of its existence and why it exists is very much <laughs> to be a satire on on society. Um, so if if it's going to be about that, that sounds great. Um, you know, it, they won't have Carl Urban in it, which is a shame. Why not? Um, I hope. But can they afford for a million well, pounds if, an episode? If, they if, probably if, can. <laughs> for a million pounds an episode, they probably can. Carl Urban made a TV series in 2013 called Almost Human. It was him and Michael Ely, and it was pretty much like a Judge Dredd esque procedural. But mm. like, I mean, and he, he loves Judge Dredd, and he wants to go back to that character. Yeah, I think and, you know I maybe think they that's can get part him. of the impetus behind it. What what I will say as well is that I think what I think is interesting about this is that um, Rebellion, who have been the owners of 2008 for quite a while now. They are, they are quite canny with what they do. They like, I think they're they're good owners of that property. Um, you know, they're small, um, and they don't have a lot of resources, but they make good use of their resources, and they 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 get good publicity for two thousand AD stuff when they need it. Um, they were careful with that movie. You know, the the ninety five Stallone movie was was not when it was in Rebellion's hands, <laughs> but the recent movie was. So I think, you know, they do take an interest in making sure that these properties are done right. They haven't just farmed them all out immediately for movies as soon as they bought the company. So um, I, if this happens, I would be confident that it would that there would be enough people involved making sure. Because that's the other thing that a lot of people at 2008 are people who've been there for years and years. And, you know, so it's like there, there's a good continuity in terms of the people working on it. So I would be confident that it would be well steered if it does happen. But equally, um, you know, as I say, you know, Rebellion are not a big media empire and they're not a production company. And they, there needs to be somebody involved in this who has that experience. If it, if it had been co-announced with like Netflix or Amazon, I would be ecstatic exactly. right now. As it yeah. is, I'm like, well, this is a nice idea, but it probably won't come to pass. Or even the BBC. But if, if it does, then <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Okay, um, well, we'll just a quick roundup of all of the other TV news from last week because it was kind of renewal cancellation week in the US. Um, Powerless got cancelled. Um, <laughs> all of the CW um, comic book shows that are returning, so Supergirl, The Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, Arrow, and Riverdale, of course, all coming back. iZombie got renewed. Uh, the CW also ordered Black Lightning, so that's definitely happening Um we don't know whether it's going to cross over with the others, but I think the fact that it's being picked up by the CW suggests that eventually it will. Uh, Gotham got renewed, Lucifer got renewed, Krypton got picked up by Sci-Fi, and um, the big one that was on the bubble was Agents of Shield, which did get a renewal. Ah. Apparently, apparently, the latest season of uh, Agents of Shield has been by some distance the best they've done. Um, so there were, I saw people. By all accounts, Ghost Rider has saved that show. Yeah. <laughs> 
and they've been doing I I don't know what they've been doing but apparently it's been good so maybe I'll catch up um but it won't debut straight away in September it will pick up after Inhumans finishes its run which uh, yeah <laughs> Inhumans 2 weeks um, in then <laughs> and then the other big pickup which we're going to talk in detail about now is The Gifted uh, previously known as Gifted this is the Brian Singer directed pilot um an X-Men TV show which we got a full trailer for this weekend um, so we thought this would be a good opportunity to talk about it, um, given that we have that full trailer. And James, this is the X-Men TV series you were waiting for. It really is, in pretty much every way. Like, I was watching that trailer, and at one point, things turn up that are quite clearly Sentinels. <laughs> there are there are Sentinels. There is an implication that it is actively like linked to and set in the same universe as the movies there are named mutant characters i mean this must have been like mutant crack for you uh, i was mostly happy to see uh, amy acker in it as well just because yeah, she's I... great and she deserves to be on tv a lot yeah and i thought that the the two main kids in the series looked uh like uh, i thought they seemed interesting i thought stephen moyer playing this like the dad who is clearly like involved with the hunting of mutants, but like now has two mutant kids. It's that's just prime for some. Yeah, I mean, it's overwrought TV drama. It's a classic X Men story of like, you know, teenagers coming to terms with it, their powers and their families dealing with bigotry. Like that's what I want to see out of an X Men story. Um, it's hero. It's heroes, isn't it? Well, that's because heroes was just X Men with a series. Heroes was, was X Men, yeah. And so now this is this is heroes with the serial num- numbers put back on, yeah, um, and cribbing <laughs> from that as well. I yep. mean, because Stephen Moyer basically might, should have been playing like what was it, Hayden Panettiere's dad, the cheerleader's dad from uh, <laughs> yeah from Heroes, and I, and then but then yeah, you get you get these actual X Men turning up like uh, Jamie Chung as Blink, and there's Polaris and Thunderbird and. Uh, Eclipse is the other one. Um, all, yeah, I mean, all this, your it, this looked, it looked, but it looked big and expensive from the from the trailer. And I mean, we've had problems with um, with more recent stuff that we've got from uh, from Brian Singer. But I thought, like visually, what he was doing with, I, I mean, I don't know how big the t- the budget is for this pilot, but what he was doing on TV looked pretty impressive from this trailer alone yeah it's it's just everything i want within reason like if we're not getting a wolverine tv series this is as good as it gets for me (laughs) seb any any thoughts on the gifted i mean it's obviously it's not as exciting as legion but um is is this a show that you're gonna watch i'm not hugely excited because yeah i think having had legion it's like having had a Fargo of the X-Men universe, do I really want to go to an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. of the X-Men universe? You take but, that back. Um, <laughs> but I might give it... I'll, obviously, I'll give it a look. Obviously, I'll watch the first episode. Uh, I, I look forward to being pleasantly surprised. If you want to see an X-Men TV series that Mojo can turn up in, is this one. I, if I want to see an X-Men series that Mojo can turn up in, I'll watch X-Men 92. True. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> is it going to be as good as X-Men 92? That is the uh, Probably not. Few things are. Uh, visually, I would be surprised if it's not. Um, <laughs> we'll move- okay, yeah. <laughs> as a live-action show, it will probably have better animation yeah. than X-Men 
Um, and then our final piece of news, um, we're sticking on the X-Men stuff. It's going to be a very X-Men heavy podcast this week. Um, New Mutants, um, a lo- the, all of those rumours, apart from one, um, have been confirmed. So, I mean, we've basically, for the best part of six months, I think, had that that <laughs> report out there that Maisie Williams was playing Wolfsbane and that Anya Taylor-Joy was playing uh, Magic um, and that we've got three or four other named mutants involved in the team. Um, the rumour, the part of that rumour that's proving not to be true is James McAvoy appearing as Professor X. And I wonder that whether maybe that was originally the plan, but they've changed their mind now that they're doing X-Men Dark Phoenix. I think um, it might have been originally the plan and he changed his mind after he did some movies. <laughs> well, he's got he's got a split sequel to film. Maybe he just doesn't have the time anymore. Quite. Um, I, I also saw someone tweet today that they had just seen Michael Fassbender and like that it was likely that he was going to be in Dark Phoenix and not in uh, New Mutants. I, uh, do you know what? I could just do with one X-Men movie. I love Michael Fassbender, but one X-Men movie without Magneto <laughs> would be would be fine by me. I mean, he phoned it in in the last one, didn't he? Like, lots of people were phoning it in, but he was especially phoning it in. Well, they just made him stand there and move metal around for the last hour of the movie. It was... Uh, True. Yeah. True. Um, Can I... Um... Can I ask James and explain a comic book concept that I don't understand go, go in relation on. to New Mutants? How do you pronounce the first name of the character that Maisie Williams is playing? I've always said it Ran. But Ran. Okay. There, Not well, there, yeah, there are in, there are sources that would because it's always it's confused rain. me, and I think I have a weird thing in my brain where um, in an X Men comic, particularly if it's written by Chris Claremont. Um, I read the letters A-H as, as in Rogue's accent. Um, so whenever I see her name, it's like it's like Rogue is saying her name and that it's actually spelled and pronounced differently from how it's said on the page. <laughs> well, Peter David wrote a comic that was called Reign of Terror, which used her name <laughs> in the title. So yeah, I have reason to believe that it's pronounced Reign. On the Jay and Miles podcast, they say Reign and they know they're X-Men. I was going to say, if anyone knows X-Men better than me, it's them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, M- Maisie Williams, Anya Taylor-Joy. I mean, Anya Taylor-Joy is also going to be in that split sequel. So she's, uh, she, she's going to be popping up on the podcast a few times in the, in the next couple of years. Um, but yeah, I think this, this is, it's, it's good casting. I like, like both of these actresses. And, um, it also suggests that the two main characters in this are female because they, I mean, right, the Magic and Wolfsbane are going to be a bigger deal than the other characters that are yet to be cast, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Can I mean, Cannibal's notionally the leader of the team, but, but so, so is so is Cyclops. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we all know how that turned out. True. Yeah. Um. And it we're fully expecting them to be doing this demon bear saga, which uh, sounds like it's going to be um a, an interesting story to adapt for the big screen. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. I think I'll it's going to be believe it different. when I see it. <laughs> well, you are going to see it, James. You're going to see it next year. Yep. And for our final piece of news, something that's broken while the podcast is, has been recorded. <laughs> um, guys, apparently Robert Zemeckis is the front runner to direct The Flash. Um, 
Okay. So, so I think I think what has happened here is someone at DC has gone, hey, do you remember that guy who directed a film about time travel? Back to the Future. Yep, that's the one. Best one ever. And you know that one? He also directs the film about that guy who runs really fast. Forrest Gump. Yeah, that's the one. What if we got him to do The Flash? What do you, what do you think about this then? Robert Zemeckis and The Flash. I don't think it's the worst idea in the world. Um, what what films has he done recently? Um, um, and, are, and are they as good as Back to the Future? Well, no, because no film ever <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, literally no he film did, is as good as Back to the Future. He did Allied was... last year, which was the Marion Cotillard, Brad, uh, Brad Pitt, uh, like spy He's movie. He's kind of he had a bit walk. of a resurgence, hasn't he? He didn't do a lot for a little while in he the was, kind of earlier 2000s, he was very... but... During the noughts, he was very interested in his um, in his oh, uh, motion, you know, capture uh, mo- motion capture stuff. Yeah. So he did Polar Express, Beowulf, A Christmas Carol, and he was gonna do that Yellow Submarine movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, this is the guy who also he did Cast Away, What Lies Beneath, Contact during the nineties, Forrest Gump, obviously Bats the Future, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which some are two of the, the best greatest films ever, ever made. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Used used cars, Romancing the Stone. I mean, I. I think, I I think I'm more excited about a Flash film if it is going to be directed by Robert Zemeckis than anyone else. I think I think I think something it. you can almost always say about his films is that they're interesting and they have at least some modicum of charm. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, I just I just thought we should we should address that before we moved on <laughs> because. Uh, <laughs> because who wants to have to wait another two weeks to hear us talk about Robert Zemeckis? Nobody. Okay, um, well, I think that brings our comic book movie and TV news segment to a close. Um, So we'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Brian Singer's 2003 movie, X2. Uh, But before we do, let's listen to the trailer for the movie. You have to understand, we thought Bobby was going to a school for the gifted. Bobby is gifted. You should see what he can do. Have you tried not being a mutant? Since the discovery of their existence, mutants have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. Drop the knives and put your hands in the air. I can't. Are they the next link in the evolutionary chain? Or simply a new species of humanity fighting for their share of the world? What do you need, William? Just your authorization for a special operation, Mr. President. We've managed to gather evidence of a mutant training facility in the upstate New York. This facility is a school. Sure it is. Nobody really knows how many even exist. Or how to find them. Except you. Who are you? I keep feeling something terrible is about to happen. I would never let anything happen to you. It's about to get very cold in here. you to read my mind sometimes the mind needs to discover things for itself they say you're the bad guy <gasps> is that what that's sad what a talent you have there. most people will never know anything beyond what they see i have faith in you the next time you feel like showing off I used to think you were one of a kind, Wolverine. I was wrong. 
Okay, so that was the trailer for X2. Uh, we're getting quite far into the uh, X-Men universe chronologically now. Um, we, we're now into what, events when did... that never actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> we we are we are in the uh, wipe all of these out of your mind. Uh, We're in the section. darker timeline. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, who knows? They're all. I think they're all dark time, timelines in the X Men universe. <laughs> um, but this is X Two, um, Brian Singer's sequel to his own uh, X Men movie a couple of years beforehand, and um, this film I think widely has a rec. Uh, a reputation as being the best X-Men movie, or certainly the best of the original trilogy. Um, and I think by a lot of people, it's held up as kind of like one of the gold standard of superhero movies. Like, you, if you were saying you're kind of top five of all time, X2 is one that gets mentioned quite often. And certainly prior to the big superhero explosion of the last, couple, the last four or five years, this was definitely one of the ones that was held up. Um, revisiting it now... Post all of all of these new movies, post the new X Men trilogy, post the MCU. Does it for you guys hold up as the best X Men movie, the best one of the best uh, comic book movies of all time? It is, for me, I, it's <laughs> definitely the best X Men movie. I th- I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if I prefer First Class. I think it is possibly the best X Men movie. I feel like all of the reasons why uh, this was held up at the time are still true of that time. Um, But I also feel that, like, if this film came out now, it really wouldn't have the reputation that it has. And I even think that... I don't think it took that long, actually. While I think this film did maintain its reputation for quite a while, I think it still does with people, it wasn't that long before it was superseded. Because, obviously, this this came along after the first X-Men and the first Spider-Man which are both yeah. great in their ways. One is a lot better than the other, but they both have this sense of still being quite cartoony and, you know, we talked about the kind of Silver Age-ness of the plot of the first X-Men and about how Spider-Man, as I say, has that kind of lighter element and quite family sort of feel to it. Um, this came along and was a lot more serious and a lot more involved and a lot more driven around the characters um, the problem is that like a year later Spider-Man 2 came out and anything positive <laughs> that you can say that this film does in terms of pushing the comic book movie forward, Spider-Man 2 does better and and where Spider-Man well... 2 still holds on to that reputation for me, I felt that the stuff that this doesn't do as well jumped out more watching it now than the stuff that it inarguably does do really well and the, and the stuff that I love about this pertaining to how it works with certain characters but um it doesn't quite hold up for me as the I mean, gold standard that it was in 2003 like for me it it's the film that does brian singer's x-men pretty much perfectly like obviously there are things about brian singer's version I mean, of definitely the universe brian singer's that i don't like film. no question yeah, yeah. oh yeah <laughs> but like like that this version of the X Men is done pretty much perfectly in this, and it's the one that comes closest, I think, to feeling like the comics as well, uh, in terms of how much focus it has on the characters and their relationships, and sort of what it means to be a mutant in this society. Mm. Um, those are all things that I enjoy about the X Men, and which are in this film and working. So I think on that level, it's still is. You know, there's an argument that First Class is maybe the best sort of Xavier Magneto film, 
but this is still the best X-Men film for me. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with uh, most of what both of you just said, but I think this is going to be an interesting chat because I think we're on a spectrum, and I think... Um, I was. I, I think I'm probably going to be the most <laughs> negative on it because I, um, I was expecting to really, really enjoy this and and have it like confirmed as the best X Men film, and it is the best Brian Singer X Men film. Um, I, I don't think it's ever going to be my favorite because First Class is, you know, there's, there's a difference between favorite and best. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. First Class will probably always be my favorite. Um, I, th- I I was surprised going back to this film that I didn't enjoy it more. And I think it is because it is it is so Brian Singer. And it is his best film. Well, it's doing I, I was going to ask... The stuff that he does guys, best, best. And the stuff that he does worst, worst. Do you, do you, I mean, does... Do you feel... Because I kind of felt this. Does does knowing Brian Singer's um, worse attributes in terms of the stuff he's done in subsequent films... Does it make you look back at this one and and it, it, basically are the negative things more conspicuous because you're less positively inclined towards Brian Singer for the and Kimberg for the you know that there are certain ticks and certain things that they do in these X Men films that I think as the series has gone on have maybe become a bit more annoying <laughs> and well, I think looking I... back at it now. It, like I think at the time everyone was like, "Oh, this is this is a really tight film," and you know, Singer is a classy filmmaker and really knows what he's doing. Since then, we haven't had a lot of very good Brian Singer movies, and it's like, <laughs> does it make you in much the same way as would you look back at early M Night Shyamalan films and think, "Well, this is the guy who did The Village," you know? Um, well, like, hang back a second because I want to know, like, what are these negative things that you're talking about? Because there's nothing in this film that makes me go like oh that was a waste of everyone's time well, like, the, for me okay, it's so pretty much plot all, is pretty stupid in places it. particularly towards the end uh, i um, mean i i i personally i i think this is a really interesting comparison to the last movie we covered which is guardians of the galaxy volume 2 and i think it's almost like the polar the polar opposite in terms of what it does well and what it does right i think in terms of like being a really tightly plotted movie this this movie does that great in terms of like being actually interested in the interior lives of its characters or having fun in the moment between character interactions or anything like that. Um, X X two isn't interested in that kind of stuff. It is, it feels like a plot dominated movie. Cause I was like going through the main team and going like, which characters does this film actually care about? Like what, which characters does it care about? how they're feeling in given situations or taking them from one place at the start of the movie to a different place at the end of the movie. And there's not, there's not really that many, like Brian Singer very regularly in his X-Men movies uses characters as props. And I would say in this movie, like Professor Xavier, Storm, Cyclops, Rogue and Mystique, who are five major characters in this movie, are basically there as chess pieces and not to actually do or think or feel anything. And there's another bunch of characters who are kind of on the on the periphery of that. Like maybe we care about Iceman and Pyro for one scene, but we don't re- <laughs> at the end of the film, we just want you to stand over there. Uh, and maybe we care about Nightcrawler at what, in one scene in the middle, but otherwise he's just there for a really cool opening sequence. And so personally, I think the movie visually looks great. There's at least two, if not three, really, really well ex- executed action sequences. Um, 
a big, big kind of like set piece moments. And I think the plot is incredibly tight. Uh, like it all fits together. And I think that the pacing of the film is great and the tone of the film's consistent. It's just it's just lacking that kind of that affection or that depth that is something that Guardians of the Galaxy was spilling over with, but didn't didn't maybe didn't have the plot and the uh, and the pacing down. See, the way that I this film like does. I kind of disagree because I think some of my favorite parts in this film are like small character moments. Like I agree, okay, there aren't necessarily big arcs for everyone, but I think like you can get from this film like you know, you know, you know how Rogue is feeling about the plot, like you know what position she's coming from when she's in the story and like with a massive cast like not everyone's going to get an arc no um, no absolutely and like but... it's just things like her sort of being excited when wolverine comes back and like there's no real explanation for why that's in there like they don't go into depth with it but it's just a small moment like the same when whenever wolverine and gene are talking like that's not an arc it's just a couple of small interactions but i you know as an x-men fan that's the kind of thing i like to see like I it's just it's fan service kind of in a way. but that's the kind of stuff that's building on the the positive points of the first movie the first movie i think sets up those relationships in interesting ways like how professor x and wolverine are when they're together and cyclops and wolverine and gene gray and wolverine and, and, and like i mean it's basically insert character X and Wolverine unless it's Magneto, <laughs> Magneto and Xavier. Um, but I, I don't think the film does much with, with those relationships beyond the first moment. I mean, like, Wolverine continues to pine after Jean and we don't really get any further with that. Rogue Rogue isn't an actual part of the plot. I mean, this is... I think this is a, a better executed movie than the first one, but I think, like... I don't know, I think the first one was more interested in the characters and this one's more interested in the plot. And the first one didn't have much of a plot and this one has a really good one. I don't yeah. know, it's just, it's just a cover. It's not, it, I mean, this is a quibble. This is not me saying I don't like the movie. This is me saying I was surprised actually revisiting it that I didn't love it as much as I was expecting to. I mean, I wonder if for me it kind of, it reflects the comics in that sense in that, the you comics don't... are plot. Well, yeah, <laughs> so the comics plot. the comics have a lot of plot and the characters sort of inch forward in instalments, whereas sort of modern filmmaking is interested in what's everyone's what's everyone's arc. If you see what I well, mean. Well, I mean, like particularly, the... I think modern superhero movies are are Marvel superhero movies certainly are constantly about the character at the expense of plot and at the expense of villains and at the expense yeah at the expense of a lot of other stuff making sense they want you to know what captain america's feeling at all times and i think like we've seen we've definitely seen that brian singer sort of goes for um a more goes for a different approach to marvel movies and i think x2 is probably the time it worked best um, well, should, should we actually dig into the the movie itself and and talk about stuff we liked and didn't like and uh, and maybe come to a resolution about who's right? <laughs> <laughs> I will. I mean, with the I, I mean to to go straight in on something that I really did like, um, with the possible exception of First Class, um, this is the best Magneto movie. Um, because what I really like about this is that it acknowledges that Magneto is at his best when 
okay, he's not a hero and he's never the hero, but the X-Men having to team up with Magneto is something that I will always be on board yeah. with. And it's like, you know, he straight up kills plenty of people in this. And right at the end of the film, he decides to put into action a, a plot to potentially wipe out all of the humans. So it's like, you know, he's, he's being full on evil at that point. But even so, for the rest of the film, the X-Men are having to work with him begrudgingly. He's being snarky at all of them in that Ian McKellen way. And it's just so much fun. I just, I, I, yeah, I will always get a kick out of films where Magneto's actually on the same side as the X Men, and neither of them like that arrangement, but they have to go along with it. One of my favourite scenes in this film is when Charles visits him, and yeah, like he sort of he has a bit of sniping, and then like he, uh, Xavier says like, "What did you tell them?" And he just like he says, "What does he say?" Does he say everything? Yeah, but he like apologizes for well, the point it at is the same yeah, he's, he's he's actually at that point he's upset about the fact that he's betrayed Xavier yeah, because he's done because so unwillingly. Even, yeah, well, like, cuz he's betrayed because he's betrayed his kind. Yeah, yeah. and his friend. Well, also, no, I think it's yeah. more that it's his friend. Yeah, it's like the and yeah. again the Magneto and Charles relationship always comes to that thing of they'll they'll have the ideological difference up to a point, but if it comes to personally hurting each other, Neither of them wants to do that, and and will pull mm. back from doing that. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Ian McKellen is great in this movie. Um, I think better than he was in the first, because in the first he is kind of like mustache twirling villain, mm. <laughs> whereas whereas here he has that he has that the the dual sides of it, and I loved. Like I love little moments like him and Mystique like whispering to each other on the plane, yeah, looking at Rogue, <laughs> and like it, it's. He's a he's a very interesting character. There's lots of layers there. I mean, you can, you can totally yeah, like, buy why. I mean, other than the fact that he's kind of a, that Pyro is kind of a bit of a dick, but you can totally buy why Pyro goes over to his side. It's oh, like if yeah, you look at yeah. what Xavier's offering and you look at the the chance to go and hang out with <laughs> with this cool mutant terrorist. It's like, yeah, do you know what? You you can totally see being charmed over to that side, especially the the what's your real name? Yeah, that's the best scene in this entire movie yeah i would agree because it's that thing of it starts off with you know obviously he's kind of looking at him suspiciously and there's the whole thing where he takes the lighter using his powers and it's that thing of oh you know uh i'm i'm one of the x-men and you're the bad guy kind of thing and then they have this conversation and it's like and, and pyro kind of comes to this thing of oh this guy's actually paying attention to him and listening to him and it's it's mm-hmm. a really subtle thing but it's the fact that he hands him back the lighter he doesn't yeah. whiz it back over to him with his powers and it's like uh i'm putting you on an equal level with me sort of thing it's a really nicely done moment well it's got like just the moment how like magneto has so much charisma and you're like oh you know that's why he's the terrorist leader guy yeah because like he he can he has that like personality yeah, and I actually that think scene this... where Professor X, when Professor X and him are talking in the in the plastic cell, I mean that's the mm. last moment of Professor X, pretty much in this movie. <laughs> yeah. as, as Professor X, and you like it. It takes actually rewatching this trilogy to realise, like Patrick Stewart as Charles Xavier spends a lot fantastic. of films Brian Singer doesn't want to use him, does he? Yeah. <laughs> he takes him. He takes him. Unlike, yeah, he's very powerful, but he takes him off the board in all of these three. But, I mean, that's, like, al- that's always been a problem with Xavier. You kind of have to do that when you're in a situation where, and these films show it at the start and at the end, 
where Xavier can walk into a room and freeze everybody's minds. It's a bit, it's the Quicksilver problem. It's when you've got a character who's too powerful that they can solve every element of the plot. You have to find a way to surreptitiously take them off the board. Or, or in Magneto's case, you have to wear a helmet that can't be penetrated. Another fantastic Magneto moment when he walks into Cerebro. Um, and, um, is it, is, is he, um, what's, 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 is he, he's not Proteus. No, no, I was getting mixed up with, um, What's Striker's son's actual mutant name? Uh, mastermind. Yeah. yeah. Oh, is, oh, is that who he's meant to be? Is he actually Mastermind? That's why he's called Jason. Ah. Well, yeah, him. Um, <laughs> Magneto just looks at him and just taps the helmet with a little smile on his face <laughs> and a little shrug. Um, you know, that's... <laughs> but yeah, the point is, you, know, you you have to take the character off the board because otherwise you would think, yeah, he can totally solve this problem. <laughs> There was a couple of moments in this film, actually, that made me appreciate Logan a bit more as well. Um, the, the film Logan rather than the character. Um, uh, cause there was, there's the fact that Professor X is being used as a weapon. Um, and you mm. think about that. I mean, they tried to do that in Apocalypse badly, but then you, you think to how he's depicted in, um, in Logan, it is the natural extension of how he's used in this movie. Like <laughs> this, this, this guy's brain is the most terrifying thing on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one was when Brian Cox shouts after uh, Wolverine as he's walking away at the end, like someone's going to come along and continue my work, but finish it. And you and you think, yeah, they did. It was Richard E. Grant. I saw it happen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he was right. Um, and I, 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 I just thought they were they were two moments that I thought, oh, I got a little bit more from those because of Logan. So that was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of Brian Cox, what 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 a treat to have two villains in this movie in the form of Magneto and William Stryker, played by Ian McKellen and Brian Cox, and yeah. just being incredible. I mean, actually, you know, yeah, when when we talk about the Marvel movies and their problems with having good villains, um, that's yeah, that's not a problem that you've got here. Um, because and and uh, what I like about Brian Cox's striker is I mean obviously you know there's no agreement with or sympathy for what he's doing but he's not just a ranting raving lunatic and you can see the logic behind everything that he does and I like that moment where and obviously you have to wait for uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine to find out the truth behind things and by that point they're fudging timelines anyway but that moment where Wolverine confronts him and like up to this point, Wolverine has always been operating on the assumption that he was this person who had this happy life that was ripped away from him by being unwillingly <laughs> forced into Weapon X. And whether or not he's lying, the fact that Stryker just says, basically says to him, well, how do you know that you had a happy life before? How do you know that you didn't come to me willingly and volunteer for this is mm-hmm. a really nice touch. I uh, it's, It is one of those occasions where I think what the X-Men franchise has done since slightly takes away from this movie. Like the, the, all of the stuff and the mystery at Alkali, like I don't care about on a rewatch because I'm so tired <laughs> of Alkali Lake at this point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just, I just don't, I just don't need to see that stuff anymore. And like, yeah, I mean, the fact that, I mean, the fact that Stryker is still showing up in, I mean, you know, I do current X Men movies. And I stuff, do like, kind of think that's because this movie did him so well. Like the Stryker yeah, in the comics yeah. basically exists for one, one or two mm. stories and then doesn't come back. 
Well, they've yeah, mixed him the with other lot. characters here, haven't they? To sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I think basically Brian Cox did it so well that they were like, "Well, let's keep investigating that character," and they don't real like Singer doesn't realize it's Brian Cox that's good, not Striker. <laughs> yeah. Well, not 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 even not even just Singer, just the 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 entirety of anyone involved with the X Men movies after this, like in the, <laughs> the Wolverine, like they did this story so perfectly well here like you get everything you need really about wolverine's origin Mm -hmm. to the point that when when they do the movie about it it's more about like and how did he get his jacket (laughs) (laughs) it's it's filling in stuff that we don't need to know because all of the actual crucial information about how wolverine became wolverine certainly in terms of the weapon x stuff Mm -hmm. is in this film yeah um and yeah, so uh, I do think it slightly takes away because I do, I think this is a, like the plot of this movie and the and Wolverine's journey through this movie is very interesting, less so when you have been ground into submission by <laughs> this story ever since. <laughs> to, like to, I just don't, I'd never see C. Alkali Lake again. To balance that a little bit, I think there's an, another element that I think enhances that where the later films enhance this a bit is that um is 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 mystique and magneto and just like just to come back to magneto for a bit but knowing everything else about mystique i think where in the first couple of films as they came out it's just oh she's magneto's henchwoman um sort of her overall level of competence and uh, like everything that she does i think is enhanced by knowing the background that she's got that you get from uh, i don't know i i just can't reconcile this character yeah, with the too. with the one from the first three movies like it just doesn't i mean it's, diff- it's difficult prequels, to, it just doesn't work for me it's difficult to fit in the it's difficult to get your head around the idea that this is someone who grew up with charles xavier and and all all mm. of that and it's difficult and to get around of, get at the end of apocalypse is leading the x-men essentially but like it's difficult to get my head around the idea that that's a character with feelings like <laughs> let alone a backstory like she's just like this kind of lizard-brained woman <laughs> like which is cool but yeah. i can't see any connection between her and the jennifer lawrence version at all yeah, because the Jennifer Lawrence version, because they tried to make her so central that they, she was like, she was the essential element who needed to be tracked down in Days of Future Past, and she'd become an icon of the mutant race and whatever. And then, it, like, to project that character forward to a point where she is a henchman of Magneto uh, is 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 hard to reconcile. I guess we don't have to because they're two different timelines. <laughs> uh, but you're, I, I mean, I see where you're coming from, Seb. But I'm with James. I just can't. I can't even in my head see them as the same character. Whereas I see Xavier and Magneto as older versions of the versions we know from the from the prequel series. It's weird. Um, I think similarly, I don't think we're there yet with characters like Cyclops and Jean Grey and Storm. Like <laughs> they, they are just these. These are the characters, and some kids turned up and played them in the last movie. But I'm not. I'm not <laughs> sure they're the same people quite yet. <laughs> Um, speaking of someone we saw in the last movie, should we go to the opening sequence and talk a bit about Nightcrawler? Yes, let's. Um, because, I mean, again, when we, when we talk about great casting, Alan Cumming as Nightcrawler uh, is pretty high up there. He's he's fantastic. And the way that this character is realised and the way that we just fetish, fetishise his mutant power in that opening sequence when he's breaking into the White House. The Alan coming that, and going sequence. 
<laughs> Wonderful. Um, I think that white. I think that White House sequence is one of the best. One of the best action sequences in superhero movies. It's it's incredible. I love it. I remember watching this for the first time and going, "Yes, I'm in. Give me more." Mm, yeah, I mean, it does agree. kind of take a character who isn't necessarily the most like physically interesting in the comics and say like you know people are scared of mutants here's a good reason why they should be because here's like a weedy guy who can like beat up an entire white house full of security with his powers like i enjoyed that here's what he can do look at how terrifying he looks um and then let's track him down and and go oh but actually let's let's figure out who he is i would have liked the movie to have spent a bit more time on Nightcrawler. Well, in Night- the kind of in the in the middle act. We Nightcrawler scene, is it's a classic thing with Nightcrawler is that he works really well as part of the X Men mutant metaphor yeah. thing because he looks like a demon, um, and yeah. so that thing of people being fearful because he's different and and this is why I'm I am borrowing points from elsewhere here, but um, the when in the Chuck Austin X-Men run that tried to <laughs> retcon him as literally being an actual literal demon. You say um, tried, it did. It well, did it do did, that. Yeah. And that doesn't really work because if he literally is a demon, then people are scared of him because he's a demon, not because he's just a person who happens to look like one. Um, yeah. But yeah, they, they there is some there's some quite nice stuff with that, and I like the bit where he has the the conversation with Mystique about you know if you can look like anybody, why do you, why do you choose to look blue like me kind of thing. Um, I I find at times like the the the. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Put on accent is a little <laughs> great. Something that Alan Cumming has form for, of course, um, with his classic turning <laughs> golden eye. Um, but I think the character's endearing enough, and like his little his little nervous smiles every so often um, really work. And you know, like the bit with the bit where he's spying on them. Um, and he just does that little, yes. that little toothy, awkward smile. Is really good. And there's yeah, a few. I, like I, I think I just would have liked to. I just would have liked a little bit more of him once we figured out that he he'd been manipulated. Because mm. that's what I mean, kind of about the way that Brian Singer sometimes uses these characters as props. It's like mm. you've served your plot purpose, and so now I'm not interested in you as a character. It, it would have been nice like, to have had some some um, more in the way of like scenes with people chasing Nightcrawler down the street, chucking bricks at him. Because that's that's your kind of classic <laughs> X Men. Uh, that's that's your yeah. Nightcrawler introduction. Yeah. 
or just a, a little bit more like he's he's one of these characters who's been mind controlled by Stryker. So mm. when they get to Alkali Lake, it might have been interesting to see how he was feeling about things, or like <laughs> see him confront Stryker or something. I, I, yeah, it does it does feel like that this movie and Brian Singer movies in general are interested in the characters when they're part of the plot and when they're not anymore it's like can you just stand over there can you just like we'll we'll, we'll cut to you in a in a shot like reacting to something but or, apart or, from that, or in the case cool. of cyclops we'll we'll forget that you were in the movie until your wife walks into a room and we remember that oh yeah you were probably being mind controlled so let's put you in a fight scene <laughs> 35 minutes or so after you were last mentioned he does yeah he does disappear and they're like oh he's fine I mean, he's fine somewhere. People go on about the bad treatment that Cyclops got in X Men: The Last Stand because of James Marsden going off to do Superman Returns with Brian Singer. I'm amazed that James Marsden went off to do Superman Returns with Brian Singer, given the way Brian Singer treats him in this one, <laughs> and indeed that's borne out by how Brian Singer treats him in Superman Returns. But that's another podcast. Um, but like... <laughs> maybe James Marsden just loves punishment. <laughs> but really, like, like I mean. I like, think come on singer talk- wreck my career. <laughs> we talked about him in the first film and like I think Cyclops gets enough in the way of fun moments in the first film like with his stuff with Wolverine but in this one he gets like, nothing here. He gets <laughs> absolutely he's a, and he's nothing. a drag every time he's actually on screen. And even, then it's the funny end, even it's just when he gets he's to like cry in Wolverine's arms because Jean's dead and it's like well, we we haven't even seen your relationship <laughs> at any point in this film. His like he can be pushing uh, like a seventy-year-old in a wheelchair, and he's still the least fun person in the room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Cyclops! I mean, because when he disappears from the movie as well, I I didn't even realize he. Yeah, was exactly. gone. No, that's, that's what I mean. <laughs> you don't realize he's gone until he reappears. Like the the movie yeah. had been happily going along without Cyclops in it until that point where he needs to be there for that fight scene. Yeah, it kind of needed a cutaway to him being mind controlled or something, didn't it? But yeah, because what was he doing yeah. in the meantime? Like he was being well, mind- I was assume he, he was around? just in a was prison, in a getting yeah. poison dripped on him or something. Maybe. <laughs> and I mean, like we we will get to X. I mean, X Men Three is going to be the next the next X Men film <laughs> we do on the podcast. I imagine. Um, Obviously, that film has a very bad reputation and kind of, you know, like a uh, different director comes in and wrecks the series that Brian Singer had had uh, executed so well in these first two films. But, I mean, in terms of the Jean and the Phoenix stuff and like like her relationship with Logan and with Cyclops... I, I like I don't I don't really feel like Gene's death feels earned at the end of this movie. No. I feel like again again he'd done the he'd done the slight bits of establishing in the first film with Gene and her mutant powers and potentially being a lot stronger. And there's like one line of expository dialogue at the start of this film saying, <laughs> "Oh, your power's been getting a lot stronger, Gene." And we just go, yeah, yeah. get it, yeah. It I'd, I'd actually then... forgotten until maybe about thirty minutes from the end that this is the one where she dies. I think I just assumed that yeah. that all happens in the third film because nothing it that this so film does feels like it's building up to that. I mean, that's kind no. of it's kind of a problem with the format in that in the comics you can do a long running subplot where her powers get expanded and she comes to terms with them and it goes wrong. Whereas in this, it's like. Unless they're going to make her the central character of the movie, it's hard to give her that much development. Mm. So, like, I 
I can sort of feel for what they were doing in like they had her in the first film and she's like you know not very strong and then in the next one she dies after getting a bit stronger and in the third one she's phoenix but do do you know what i mean it's i'm going back to the point that i made at the start about like brian singer it feels like it feels like the first movie had established all of these relationships and had established these concepts and the second film just what this film wants to do is tell a plot with those characters in that place and then move on from that it's like it it, even the the Wolverine Jean relationship, the most interesting scene I think between those two characters in this film is when Jean is actually Mystique. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and, and so yeah, I, I like it. Just it, it feels like Brian Singer. I mean, and this is this is a terrible criticism to make, and I feel bad about making it. I feel like Brian Singer is more concerned with the quality of this film than the overall franchise. <laughs> <laughs> but no, see, I like, like I say, I don't, I don't mind that the characters only inch forward in this because the plot carries it, and like that, you know, that's what I'm used to is a, a plot happening with subplots, and like I'd have been happy for them to do ten films of this quality with this amount of development for people. You're right. It does feel very comic, comicy, and it especially feels like. Um, it feels like the X-Men comics that I've read or read about in that you've got these big story arcs happening and that like Chris Claremont will kind of drop at the bottom of a page like a conversation between two characters that doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on now, but it's <laughs> maybe just referencing something that you might expect to happen 10 issues in the <laughs> Yeah, it will pay off in a year or two. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of like, I'm just going to I'm just gonna say these things. And so when that happens in X-Men 3 or at the end of this movie, you'll go... Oh, yeah okay yeah i mean um, it's just the problem is it doesn't work when you've got three years between films or whatever yeah yeah that, well it it, it 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 i mean it sounds like something that would work better on a tv show hey brian singer maybe you should direct an x-men tv show <laughs> okay well i mean speaking of the wolverine and gene relationship i mean this is this i mean the first film we talked about how it's kind of like wolverine's the protagonist early on and then kind of or he's, he's like the audience POV character and he's the character that is almost the lead of the movie, but the movie's not about him. Uh, this is the movie that is about him, really. Like he is, he's central to it, even though the, even though the striker plot isn't about Wolverine, he's so central to all of this stuff. And because it's about his backstory. Um, Although you do, you do get another he, example of Magneto saying to him, oh, you think it's all about you. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think it's a neat way of doing it. I think it's a neat way of of again having Wolverine ser- serve as our audience surrogate mm. character, um, but not have not have the plot be a Wolverine plot that the the X Men are tangentially involved in. Like the X Men have to be here. I mean, one of the things I, I I love about the way in which in which he is an anchor in these films, and you know, definitely something that later context has done. I mean, he was always great, but with every subsequent film and we've talked about it on other podcasts but your your feeling of your feelings of warmth and affection for Hugh Jackman playing that character just grow and grow and then you look back on him in the earlier films and you appreciate just what he's doing as a through line throughout these but what i love particularly and similarly to the way that i said that like i could all day long i could watch scenes where magneto is having to team up with the x men every x men movie should feature wolverine having gone away for a bit coming back to the X-Mansion, hanging out in the kitchen and kind of wryly passing comment on what's been going on in his absence. 
because that stuff is gold and um, you know it's just like that that those are moments where he's kind of the pov character and he's kind of coming in and sort of viewing the goings-on of the mansion from the outside kind of thing and it's just yeah there's i think there are a few things that work better in these films than wolverine coming back to the mansion <laughs> even though it doesn't i love that, that little the you know, thing where he's like looking for a beer and yeah it's just like it's a school <laughs> it's a school yeah. yeah and that little bit with, with of... cooling down the glass is lovely yeah, yeah. The bottle rather. yeah mm-hmm. i think the the x-men tv series that i would most like to see is just as like a school series set at the X Mansion, where we just watch these young kids interacting with these mm. teachers who are running off to fight like stuff. <laughs> like, yeah, and you never and see them going con- off con- and con- having con- superhero fights. You just see yeah. them disappearing to go and have them. <laughs> you just see them disappearing and having their own like. It's like is Professor Logan and Professor <laughs> Professor Jean Grey are they like are they flirting over there or like or just. Uh, I mean, because the stuff in this film uh, that I like is like, you know, just the little scene like, yeah, when when Wolverine's chatting to Iceman or when Wolverine's chatting to the little kid who's blinking the channels on the TV. (laughs) I just, I like those Or when he's talking to Iceman's parents and the, uh, what do you teach Mr. Logan? (laughs) Art. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think all of those moments, they're they're best when you've got Wolverine. Mm. He's... I mean, you can see why these movies wanted to spin off and do Wolverine on his own. Um, but I think he is I think he is best when he is the lead in a movie, but he's got all right, of Right, I think we said that to bounce off. Didn't we say that in Origins is that when he's got some authority figures to kick against, he's funny. Mm. But when mm. he's just by himself, he comes across as really whiny and yeah. not not interesting. Like you can't rebel against no one. <laughs> And, and, I, I mean, I think well, that's, that's I just think as, as well true in the comics is... as well. I never think Sega, solo like... Wolverine comics are as interesting as you know. There, like there are some that are good. Well, yeah, but you know, yeah. You, you just haven't read the right ones. <laughs> Do you mean Frank Miller? I think he's always <laughs> the most interesting when he's looking out for other characters as well, rather than mm. himself. Like when he's, I, I, I like that paternal side of Wolverine. I like him. Oh yeah, out totally. For Rogue yeah. And, um. It is why <laughs> I don't know. Um, I I love Wolverine in this movie, but can we talk about the fight with Lady Deathstrike, which is I was about to get to this because it's such it's a sequence that that fills me with so much internal conflict because it's a great the it, the choreography of a fight scene with two characters that have those power sets that can both heal that both have big adamantium claws of some kind coming out of their hand that are fighting and healing at the same time and are able to like do these elaborate kind of almost gymnastic kind of fight moves um and then the the beauty of the final shot of the kind of lady deathstrike with the liquid adamantium (laughs) seeping out of her and solidifying but she's a mind-controlled character. Yeah, this is this is the one thing that I think the film completely fumbles is that oh. she she was being mind-controlled, and you get that glimpse of her earlier, sort of awakening, fr- like in horror at what's happened. Yeah, and there's no sense that he's doing like a mercy killing or anything. Because I know she's a she's a villain in the comics, right? Yeah, she's a she's a vastly different character in the comics. Yeah, I'm not even I sure I picked up on the fact that she was mind controlled. She, I mean, she has that little moment of like she starts to wake up and they pin her down and put more of the mind control uh, stuff on her neck. Because I mean, because I guess you can't have any. 
there's no reason why any mutant would willingly work for Stryker. Yeah, but like I, given given his goals, mm. there's no reason why any any of them would willingly work for Stryker. No, quite. So I wonder whether it whether it needed like some establishment of her. Uh, I don't know, working for Magneto to begin with, or to be, um, or like her to be on this. Maybe she gets out of her mind control and starts helping Magneto to try and wipe out the humans, and then Wolverine kills her. But I mean, it's. I mean, it's just it's just really unpleasant because you think about the other characters who are mind controlled in this film, and because the film doesn't play it as kind of like a a horrible moment, it, it's kind of like I think Wolverine feels bad that he had to kill. Someone, I don't know. It does kind of play. I was going to say. I think it does kind of play it as a horrible moment. I think. I think it's it's a quite quick and quite instinctive moment, and there is that there is that look, and he kind of looks away as well. Kind of, I think there is that feeling of. There was nothing else I could do in this situation. That's really I unpleasant. Don't buy that. I'm sorry. I don't know. I think. I mean, that's the I, thing. I, like, I, like, you, you have to believe she that... could have beaten him, and I don't believe he she could have. Because <laughs> yeah, and the, and the mind control stuff is something that wears out, and especially if you're you're a character who can continue taking punishment and not die. Mm. Like the only way he could have died was her doing the same thing to him. And I mean, like, if you think about it from the other characters who are mind controlled in this film, it'd be the equivalent of this being done to Nightcrawler or Cyclops or Magneto. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I don't know. It, it's an uncomfortable moment. I mean, and it's also un- it's also uncomfortable because it's a female minority character that is happening to as well. Yeah, like she know? doesn't get any dialogue in the whole film, does she? No. Like, I mean, it's she gets like one one or two lines. I think it's even worse because in the comics, Deathstrike is a much better villainess than she is in this film. Like here, they essentially stripped out everything but the visual. She, she's a Bond her. henchwoman in this, isn't she? She's yeah, you know. where, yeah, like you know, minority with a gimmick. Whereas I mean, in the vi- comics, she's vastly more complex and more interesting. But visually, the character is fantastic, and I love the I love the the clicking of the hands that we keep seeing her doing. Mm. Um, and I, and I think the, the visuals of the, the claws coming out of the fingers is great. And when she fights with Wolverine, the kind of the really fine cuts that she forms across his face. And like some of the, the, the fighting style, the kind of the feral like stabs with the claws. And when she's stabbing him from underneath as well is, is it's like that, that fight I think is really, really visceral. And like I say, the actual shot of the adamantium mm. seeping out of her, and it's the clunk when gorgeous. she hits the bottom of the tank as well. Is oh, a really, is a really yeah. good bit of sound design with that. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> like immediately, immediately solidifying inside mm. of her. Yeah, I mean, I think and you just wish you just wish that 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 could have been the fate of a really evil character. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think I kind of think the reason they don't linger on it is because, like in the comics, she's a villain. And so in the mm. movie, she you expect her to be a villain, and they muddy the water by a making her a mutant when she's not in the comics, and b then deciding to explain why she's working with Striker if she's a mutant. Like if they'd cut that scene of her, um, getting the extra mind control stuff, the death would have been a lot less horrific mm. and a lot less of a misfire than it is. Yeah. Um, someone who gets a similarly horrific death is the uh, is the guard in the prison. Um, 
I, I, uh, I, I really enjoyed this start to finish because it gives uh, Rebecca Romaine her kind of, I think, her best sequence in the movie where she, well, in in any of the movies where a she's allowed to speak, so that's that's nice for her. Um, but it reminded me. I don't know if either of you guys watched the Americans, but uh, Rebecca Romaine she was reminding me of Kerry Russell in the Americans, like the, this master of disguise going out to a bar, seducing this man, doing something to him that he's not going to realize has fatally compromised him until much <laughs> later down the line. Um, there, there's that really funny, like, ooh, sweatpants moment or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like it's a rare moment of actual comedy. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I I actually thought as well the the guy who plays the guard um was was good. He's the he's the right level of evil dickhead. He's not he's like he's uh kind of cartoonish enough. Yeah. That, that it you don't doesn't mind pl- seeing it... him have <laughs> loads of metal ripped out of his body and turned into a bullet. <laughs> I mean, well you still do. It's still pretty horrific, but I don't think it's quite as I don't think it's quite as horrific as the Lady Deathstrike moment. Um but yeah, I mean, what what an idea just to pump someone with iron and then take out the the like the particles from his blood and the way I think the the way the film does it. I mean, we everyone talked about with Logan how the like the murders in Logan like he was essentially doing the same thing that he'd always done in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, some some of the like goons that he takes out in this movie, he takes out in exactly the same way he does in Logan. But there's the there's the like horrible blood and the actual <laughs> impact of of it in Logan, whereas here it's like snicked, done. Yeah, it's move on. I, I, I think that I think there's a there's a sequence where they go too far with that, which is in the school, and it's like it's quite clear at that point that he is chopping up a lot of people, but yeah, it's just it, it stretches. I know we're talking about a movie and people get stabbed and shot in movies with no blood all the time, and it's just something you buy into. But it really stretches that suspension of disbelief. It's that, that first guard where he like impales him in in the chest yeah. with both fists, and you're like, really, no yes, blood, like from the chest cavity. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, and then but then for the moment in the cell with uh, Magneto, I think it's it's really subtle. You just kind of see the the bloods like seeping onto mm. his shirt, like yeah. it's because it's all of these millions of tiny little impacts at the same time it's 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 horrific but i think it's i do the thing i love well executed the thing i love about that sequence is how inventive it is with his powers because it's like yeah you know this is how dangerous he can be with just two little balls of metal and like the way he Mm. makes a disc for himself to float on and stuff like i i really enjoyed all that stuff um, the, and it kind of makes me wish he did more in the other films than like throw cars and guns around (laughs) There is. I'm, I still wonder, though. I know I maybe need to go back and look at it properly in in HD or whatever. But is Stryker not wearing metal glasses when he goes in to see him earlier in the film, <laughs> or does Stryker have specially made plastic glasses that he wears carbon just for fiber. going to see Magneto? Carbon fiber frames. Well, maybe <laughs> they look metal. I so I I did appreciate it as well because. A, a lot of movies like this that kind of take a villain and try and integrate them into the main team will kind of like sand off some of the rough edges but Magneto stays true villain start to finish here it literally is a marriage of convenience with the X-Men for this one mission mm-hmm. um, and 
yeah, there there isn't there isn't really any moment where he tries to convince the X Men that he's not all that bad, or even well, where he does soften his stance for a moment. He's well, I just think a complete bastard starts to finish. I think <laughs> I think what this gets right though, and I think the first film maybe wavers on a little bit is, as far as Magneto's concerned, Mag- Magneto doesn't see himself as evil. As far as Magneto's concerned, humans don't count and mutants do. So a, yeah. a, a pretty key thing with Magneto is that he would not want to willingly kill another mutant, even if they're his enemy. For the most part, Magneto's not going to go around trying to kill the X-Men. He, he, he doesn't want the X-Men to stop him, but it's it's people who he's trying to kill. And I think in the first film, you do have that slight issue where like he's willing to sacrifice Rogue for the sake of the plan, and actually, it, that's not very Magneto-ish. Um, but yeah, a Magneto who he's not going to spend his life plotting to kill the X Men. He just wants to kill humans and doesn't see that as evil. <laughs> yeah, the X Men get in his way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it works in this because yeah, you don't have that fear of is he going to turn on them all and kill them. Um, but you don't have to try and turn him part way good to get that because you've already got it with him. It's already a facet I mean, of his character. It also it also helps that in this film there is a human who is treating mutants the way he treats humans. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's the thing. Striker, I mean, o- o- Striker is happy he... to just kill mutant children if he can. Like yeah. he only leaves them alive so he can experiment on them. So other than that that point where Magneto flips the Cerebro thing, up to that point. Magneto's completely on on the right side, you know. He's like he, he wants to stop Striker, so good on him, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just his methods are a little bit different. Well, yeah, but Wol- you know, Wolverine kills people. It's like you you can't really yeah. take the moral high ground over Magneto killing people who are trying to kill him when Wolverine does the same. Thing. I mean, he does kill a load of people who have legitimately jailed him for trying to like blow up the UN or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that guard was a dick, man. <laughs> the guard was a dick, but what about the other guys? Like, they they're just trying to work out their pensions. Yeah, but yeah, but you know, to Magneto, they're just ants. You know. Yep. Hmm. Um, I wanted to talk about something that the that we talked about a lot during the first movie. Um, and. It is in here, but it's kind of it's more lip service here. So we talked in the first movie about how with. Professor X and Magneto, we are doing a kind of civil war, uh, a civil rights um, parallel with <laughs> Martin Luther King and uh, Malcolm X. And we also talked about a lot of about Brian Singer, how he was kind of turning the mutant gene into a into a uh, a gay metaphor. Um, there are, I think, like the. Because that's been established in the first film, it's kind of just the backdrop to this. And I think we get a couple of moments that hits it explicitly. I mean, the first, I think, is the fact that we're starting out in the White House after the Professor X let's catch you up with the status quo in this universe. <laughs> it's quite funny. Uh, monologue at the start. I thought it was quite funny that they opened the film by explaining what a mutant is, as if people might not know. <laughs> hey, they might not, but some people might not have seen, yeah, yeah, just like not have seen the first X-Men. Old school. Yeah, but so we get that, and then it li- it literally immediately the first shot is a portrait of uh, Abraham Lincoln in the White House. <laughs> so again, I think just a, a nod to oh hey yeah that's a civil rights metaphor, and then I think for the most part it's it's in the background because it's just it basically takes that idea and then comic bookifies it of all of the mutants want to kill all of the humans and all the humans want to kill all the mutants and uh, like that's uh, like, everyone hates each other and. 
it, it basically, I think it boils it down to the Magneto striker relationship and then just has our heroes going in and trying to, trying to defuse the situation. Um, but the, the gay metaphor comes back in one scene, doesn't it? Um, which is <laughs> lifted from Joss Whedon <laughs> in, in Buffy, uh, Joss Whedon wrote a scene where I, I forget the exact episode because it's been a long time since Buffy, but um, Buffy's mum literally twenty, 20 years don't don't 20 years? don't use numbers. It upsets me. <laughs> um, she she after she finds out sh- that Buffy's the Slayer, she says to her, "Have you tried not being the Slayer?" Yeah, yeah, and it's like Joss Whedon yeah. knew what metaphor he was going for there, and Brian Singer went, "I'm having some of that." <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I, just for anyone who's listening, Iceman's parents say to him, "Have you tried not being a mutant?" Yeah, and it's and there's, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there. It's almost like a, it's like a tick box of what are what are the top five responses a parent will have to their son coming out to them, and it's like, um, <laughs> "We'll love you, we'll love you no matter what." Is it a phase? Like it's it's there's a, there's a they like go through the gamut of emotions, don't they? In between the three of them, and then the, I mean. Let's talk about the real v- villain of this film. Bobby Drake's <laughs> brother is a fucking arsehole, isn't he? Yeah. He's the worst. <laughs> Runs upstairs and calls the police and then the pet, like, it causes the entire problem. They're having a civilised discussion. The authorities turn up. We get that the house gets destroyed by fire. Police get blown gunshots. up by pyro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, any film where the where a teenage boy is the cause of all the problems seems fairly valid to me. um but yeah so i i I think that's a it's also it's a nice little scene in the middle to kind of like stop and take stock of the the situation i think it's the kind of like all right let's we've we've had the first batch of uh like action and excitement and now we're gonna we're gonna calm things down we're gonna have characters talk to each other for a minute um and i liked that sequence i liked it a lot more than the action sequence that follows it with the jet being taken down. I could have done with less ex-jet in this movie. The jet feels too central to a lot of stuff that's going on. <laughs> There's a funny, yeah, the bit where they're like what, this school looks like a normal school but also it has an experimental jet. Uh, mm. There's a bit do you notice they go to pick up Nightcrawler in Boston and then a, w- but, there's a bit where they're out of communication range and it takes them apparently an entire night to fly back from Boston in a in a supersonic jet. Like yeah. really? <laughs> they're fudging that you, a bit. Do you, do you think that? Do you think there were cutscenes there? Possibly <laughs> that Storm and Jean Grey were off doing something else in the middle. I, as well? I just think Brian Singer had too much story. Like uh, presumably they were just hanging out with Nightcrawler, like you know, packing a bag for him or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 entirely possible that there was other stuff going on in this movie. Just just like glancing at the. Um, at the, the Wikipedia page. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was there was talk about like how that uh, there was a Gambit cameo that was actually filmed uh, <laughs> that wasn't used in the final cut, and that there was a there was a scene that was going to include Beast in his human form, and uh, like a, a bunch of stuff like that. And I I I wonder that would be, and as, especially because this is another film where Storm gets to do nothing. That you would think maybe maybe there was other stuff that they were off doing at one point. <laughs> she drives. She flies the plane a bit. She does. She does fly the plane a bit. Her, yep. her eyes turn. Her eyes turn white at least twice. She makes a storm. Hence the name. Yeah, it, it is weird, isn't it? Given that the kind of the 
the core team of this movie, well, of of the the first two movies, is Professor X, Wolverine, Cyclops, Storm, and Jean Grey. How much a lot of those get sidelined for the majority <laughs> of the first two movies? Like, like this movie, because I, I was trying to, I was trying to figure out like which characters I thought did have that Brian Singer was interested in during this movie, and I, I. I went that he had interest in Wolverine, Magneto, and Striker from start to finish, mm-hmm. and that he had interest in Nightcrawler, Pyro, and I and and Iceman in a couple of scenes, <laughs> like that. That they were the ones that I could think of, and most of those characters were new for this movie. Yeah, <laughs> like I mean, Striker, Striker, and Nightcrawler, and I mean, I guess Pyro and Iceman were in the first one, but but don't get don't get an awful lot like to the point that wolverine walks back into this movie and even though Iceman was in the first movie he doesn't remember him <laughs> i think um, i think i think colossus arguably has a more memorable bit in this movie than storm does at any point oh yeah colossus does colossus turn metal in this yes uh yeah for like one scene I... yeah I, I was trying i was Trying to remember, like, because I would, I started to rewatch it with the commentary on. And I got bored. It's it's, it's obviously <laughs> them just going. Look, here's a guy. He's 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 obviously made of the right stuff. No pun intended. Um, we know that bit where he's like, "I can help you." And he's like, "Help them." And it's like, "Here's somebody who wants to be a hero. He'll probably be significant in the next one, won't he?" Yeah, sort of he'll probably get fucking shredded in Deadpool. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like Colossus as a character, and I actually like f- physically that. I mean, they talked about. The bit I did hear on the commentary was Brian Singer saying that someone literally walked into a gym, like the casting director was in a gym and saw this guy who was six foot ten and cut like a freaking steak. And <laughs> they were like, hey, do you want to be Colossus in the next X-Men movie? And he was like, sure, thanks. <laughs> dreams, <laughs> so they were clearly, dreams can come true. They were clearly never, never thinking of uh, using him m- much more than they use him here. It's funny, isn't it? They cast like... You don't see this as much in superhero movies now of kind of like these secondary characters just walking by in the background who are noticeably like main characters from the comics. Like, because now with shared universes, oh, you, we, we might want to use that character. That happens a, down the line happens a lot in X-Men 3. <laughs> it does. But I mean, even here, I mean, like, because, I mean, Kitty Pride obviously they recast, but she's walking around in the background. Jubilee's walking around in the background here. We get that Colossus bit. Um... There's something that I'm reading here that there's two characters who are confirmed to be Danielle Moonstar and uh, Cypher walking around in the background at one point. <laughs> I'm not sure I believe that. <laughs> uh, they were, these were later confirmed. That's what Wikipedia says. Mm, and you yeah. can't disagree with Wikipedia. Fan theories Appar- that were confirmed. No, oh, no. Apparently it was confirmed on the audio commentary. They they do... The okay. I didn't get that far. <laughs> didn't get that far. They do uh, name one of the characters as Artie, although he has the wrong powers. Uh, who is Artie and what should his powers be? Artie is a pink child who has the power of making uh, visual holograms, I guess. Illusions appear. Okay. Um, but in this film, he's got a lizard tongue. Okay, okay. <laughs> should, we, should we finish off uh, by just, again, talking about something... I and mean, we talked about Brian Cox and how good he is as William Stryker, but should we actually just finish off by talking about the... That actual central plot mechanic of Striker's son <laughs> yeah. and Striker's, because I mean, 
Jason is a character that I almost, I almost like always forget is in this movie. Uh, fun fact: that actor also played Bane in Batman and Robin. <laughs> oh, so you can <laughs> yeah. you can use that in your next uh, like ba- Bane pre transformation. <laughs> yes, be yeah. definitely Bane pre transformation. <laughs> um, yeah, um, but Guess I more always lines. kind of forget he's in it. But he's like he's crucial to everything that's going on, um, and. Because it like so, am I right in thinking the the mind control serum that's like his spinal fluid or something? Yeah, his in like he's a version of a character called Mastermind, um, who was the most forgettable member of the original Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Yeah, his like his power is to make anyone sort of see what he wants. Um, in the comics, it's done telepathically, but in this, there's a kind of biological element, I guess, like pheromone or whatever. Uh, so that's where that's come from. So he's kind of, he's kind of got Professor X-esque powers, but because uh, I, I was trying to work out like exactly how they're able to overpower Professor X. I like I would say in terms of other superpowers, he's close to it's like Purple Man type stuff. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. That's. I think that's more what they're going for, rather than telepathy in this film. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, so he's he's central to that. He's central to the mind control of the other characters, and he is. I think he. It's really good when you see him wheeled in for the first time, uh, and he's got that kind of scar on his head, and he seems like he's like almost a void of a character, um, like mentally anyway. Uh, you, you get at, at the facts and then the way that uh, Patrick Stewart sells it with, oh, your son, William. Like, it's... I think that's the moment where you truly grasp the horror of Stryker and what Stryker's doing and mm-hmm. what Stryker's capable of, that he is, like, so willing and so uh, intent on killing the all of the mutants that he's willing to do that to his son. Um, the one thing I did think it, it might have been... Uh, nice to like see a flashback to young to young Jason bef- and and Professor X with young Jason before we got to that moment. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's spoken about mm. how he was a he was a student at the school and it, it's kind of like it's it's all there, but I didn't really I didn't really feel it until I saw the young version of Jason in his mind. Yeah, it's weird that the. It never really tries to go for any kind of sympathy towards him. Like initially, your thought is, "Oh, he's obviously being like manipulated by his father," but I'm not sure by what means he's being coerced. And there's a brief bit of sort of, um, you know, "Oh, he's going to be so angry at me." But it's like he seems a bit more willing to actually push this through than you might expect. I mean, I guess he's just yeah. been tortured and lobotomized and messed with to the point where he'll mm. he's compliant. And maybe maybe yeah. that's so that you don't have to feel bad about the fact that he doesn't get teleported out by Nightcrawler because <laughs> that would be a difficult I mean, dangling plot thread to try and otherwise wrap up. <laughs> that's definitely another moment in the film where I was like, because literally we watch Nightcrawler bamf in and out of there, and like pick up one person and then pick up another and then pick up another and then there's like just this lingering shot of Jason in his wheelchair sat in there and nope. and, and you're like you're, you're waiting for him to bounce back in and it never happens I mean there were, there was definitely points in that final sequence where I was like 
maybe Stryker's right. These guys are the worst. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Um, and, and then should we should we actually finish things off with that scene in the president's office? Because that's that for me is one of those kind of iconic images from the X Men series, the Professor X and yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't make a lick of sense when you think about it. Yeah, like, they screw that if, up a bit, don't they? If if people are watching the president do a live address on TV and suddenly <laughs> everything cuts off, there is going to be bedlam. It's like how does and how is how is the White House not being swarmed by the military? Tried to find out I mean, what's gone they, on. <laughs> they explicitly say as well the cameras are rolling and then the X-Men yeah. turn up and stop it and then it starts again. Yeah. And it's like, the X-Men can't stop time. Like, And also, what? yeah, the people watching on TV will have seen this folder appear on the president's desk and just like, well, not, you know, there'll be, there'll be a yeah. gap. Yeah. But the point is, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice visual and it makes for a really cool scene with them all in there and mm. stuff, but... You stop and think about it, and it's yeah, this is a bit dumb. And there's a couple yeah, of bits no. that are a bit like that because I kind of felt that way about Jean sacrificing herself. It feels like she only dies because she has to die so that the Phoenix story can yeah. happen. It doesn't feel that with her power as it is at that point, why does she have to be standing there and let the water fall upon her? Why can Storm not help her, you know, given Storm's powers? It's it, you know, could Storm not go and pick her up, fly her up above where the jet is, and Jean use her power to lift the jet? It's I don't know. It's I know it's like fridge logic or whatever, but it just feels a bit too convenient that they have to manoeuvre a way for Jean to sacrifice herself for pretty much no good reason other than so that they can kill her. I mean, that's exact. That's exactly how I felt about the Lady Deathstrike death. Like it felt like. There was another option for Wolverine, but the plot, it was just tidier to just kill her there and move on and hope that nobody noticed what horrific act had just taken place. Uh, I think, though, actually, the more we talked about this, the more I've, I've inched closer back to your point of view, James. Maybe maybe you have won the discussion. <laughs> oh, that's rare. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I still, I still I don't think it's my favourite, and I still think that I would like there to be more going on with the characters. I'd like Brian Singer to be more invested in how these characters are feeling, um, I, and uh, just give—I I mean, I mean as well—just give some of the supporting cast a couple, a couple bit more, a couple more moments, or a couple of other things to do. I, th- I think it's just—I mean, it—it it, it is good. I think it's just that. Um... As I kind of said at the start, like what it does well has been done by hadn't been done as much then as it has now. Yeah. Um, and I does say I do think I think all three um, of the first three X Men films are not as good as the three Spider Man films that immediately followed them, and I even include Spider Man <laughs> three in that. Um, <laughs> you know, like the first X Men film was pretty good, and then Spider Man was better. X Two was pretty great, and then Spider Man Two was better, and so. There's, you know, it's 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 fun to seek out if you like the X Men films and you want to kind of go back and relive it, or if you're doing what we did on this podcast. But um, you don't what you can get out of this, you can get out of a lot of other films in this genre now. I think it's it's almost as if I would love to pluck Spider Man out of his film and stick him into a film that's as tightly plotted as X Men <laughs> Two, 
or and then pluck the X Men out of this film <laughs> and put them in a film that is as concerned with character and relationships <laughs> as Spider Man Two. Yeah, it's all, you know, it's specific, like... specifically, I'd like to take the Magneto out of this film and put him in a film that that gives him even more and makes him more the centre. I, mean, I, th- I think that a is Spider-Man, the main thing that a comes Spider-Man out of film with Magneto as the villain <laughs> is what you're saying. Yeah, basically, I would watch. I would I'd, honestly, I would watch because I do. I, I, th- I think I think McKellen is the main. Re- McKellen and Jackman are the main reasons to go back to this film, as they usually are in any X Men film in which they appear. <laughs> I'm going to add Brian Cox into that. I think Brian Cox is excellent. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think he sells it. I think he sells a character who is explained through exposition incredibly well. Okay, well that was X two. Um, we're going to move on to your comic book recommendations now. Um, and this was one of those weeks where I I was wondering whether I could half guess what you were going to recommend <laughs> before. I think you can whole guess. Yeah. Okay, so what one of my guesses is God loves man kills. Correct. <laughs> Who's recommending that one? Uh, I'm going to because I'm guessing Seb hasn't read it. I have, but a long time ago, and it's it's okay. really your area of expertise, this. So. Yeah. Yes. So this is the comic where the character of Stryker comes from. Uh, it was more or less his only appearance for a long time. They did bring him back for a second series around the time of the movie, and frankly, the less said about that, did. the better. Oh, God, I it's actually bought a, the first issue. Not a good comic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, I think the key difference is that in this story which was an original graphic novel uh, from 1982 written by chris claremont and drawn by brent anderson um striker is a, a like a bigoted preacher not a government like army yeah. killbot or whatever he is <laughs> um He's Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, but I mean there are there are things in common like he did have a mutant child although it's very different uh, to the way this is done um, trying to think of important points you might know to read. I think the main thing is that this is set during a period quite early in the X Men's history when uh, Professor X was not a mutant. Uh, sorry, Professor X, where Professor X was not like publicly known to be a mutant. Right. Um, okay. So that's something that didn't actually get reversed until Grant Morrison's run. When he, mm. he publicly, or Cassandra Nova rather, publicly announces that Professor X is a mutant. Like, until at this time, Professor X is believed to be, like, a preeminent mutant uh, sort of scientist. But it's not known that he's a mutant himself. So I think that sort yeah. of plays in early on. Uh, but otherwise, it's got quite a classy X-Men team. It's got, like, Wolverine, uh, Colossus, got Nightcrawler in it. It's got Rogue... Uh, has it got Rogue? It's got Shadowcat, definitely. Like, it, it's that sort of early team. Uh, yeah, it's, it's widely considered one of the, the best sort of single X-Men stories. Um, and I think even though it's going to have that sort of 80s uh, stylistic edge to it, I think you'll enjoy it. Excellent. Okay, so God Loves Man Kills is James' recommendation. And so, Seb, I was guessing that you were maybe going to, like, pull one character out of this film who's kind of interested in this one and recommend me a comic where they're also good? Is that what's happening? Uh, no, actually. Um, <laughs> ah, f- oh, I've gone one for two. Uh, I am going for something that's uh, actually kind of relevant to other recent podcasts, though, uh, which is the first volume of uh, Ultimate X-Men. 
No, God, why? Why would you do that to anyone? <laughs> do you really, do you really hate it? I think it's all right, actually. As I think certainly as Miller stuff goes, I think I think it's tough going to start with. But like with the Ultimates, once you accept that it's a pretty cynical and unpleasant take on some of the characters, and actually it kind of softens as it goes on, particularly on Wolverine. Like when it when it first introduces Wolverine and a couple of the others, they're just really horrible. But as it goes on um but it's i mean it's up to you if you want to read the first six issues or the first 12 so you can read one arc or two um because i think the sec the second arc is a bit more relevant to this film because it's about going back to weapon x and it's a quite different take on weapon x from this film but it has some similarities um it's also having given that you've just read ultimates um the weapon x storyline is where ultimate nick fury is first introduced he actually appears there before um he does before he's the leader of shield in ultimates and it's in a lot of ways it's kind of a companion piece to ultimates like the first couple of arcs happen before ultimates but they as as ultimate x-men starts to go on because miller's writing both of them he does start to feed elements back and forth hence quicksilver and scarlet witch and there's kind of references made in some of the later arcs to oh the ultimates are in the process of being formed and stuff but i think it's a i think as a as a modernish take on the x-men it's it's not bad it's and it's you know, it's got some Millerisms, but um, in other ways, I think there's some there's some pretty good stuff in there. And, and again, I think his take on the Magneto and Charles relationship is is pretty well done. He does do. I mean, Magneto is more out and out villain in this than in some other takes, but um, I think he's well written. Actually, he he suits Miller's bombastic tendencies quite well. So. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a quite enjoyable read. I, th- I think I think off the back of Ultimates as as a, as a companion piece, it'll be interesting for you to read it. Excellent. So some more Mark Miller Ultimate comics. Fantastic. Um, okay, we'll move on to our final section now, which is the pitch. And one moment from X two that we didn't talk about, um, but is uh, like the kind of ultimate Easter egg in this film is when Mystique hacks into William Stryker's computer and you see all of these folders and files that lists a bunch of X-Men characters, some of whom are in the films, some of whom have been introduced in the film since, some of whom have still never shown up. Um, but a bunch of these mutant characters and concepts, it's like the it's like the flash drive scene in Batman v Superman, but not terrible. Um, <laughs> and so so we get we get this whole list of characters, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun if I could get you guys to to look in Striker's computer, pick out some of those characters um, that you could introduce into the next X Men movie? So kind of how you would introduce them, and which actors and actresses you would cast in the roles. Um, if you want to look this up, listeners, there is a, you can go on the xmenmovies.wikia.com, which has a, a, a section on Striker's computer, which lists everyone that's on there. There's, there's a bunch from the recognizable to the very obscure. Um, James, who did you pick out and who did you decide that you'd like to introduce into the next X-Men movie? Okay. So, uh, my pitch for the next X-Men movie is that the X-Men get taken to the Mojoverse. Uh, do I? How much of that do I need to explain? All of it. Okay, so the <laughs> the Mojo verse is ruled by a kind of despot who called Mojo, who is like this overweight, entertainment obsessed, like dictator, where of like in this world where everyone is kind of brutal and it's sort of like as introduced. It's the, he was like it's the guy in the it's the alien at the start of Space Jam. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> it's like you know it's kind of a, a satirical take on entertainment that has come to pass basically um and so they want to bring the Looney Tunes over to entertain the masses because they've seen their cartoons. Yeah. So, well, yeah, that, he does yeah. that, but with the X-Men. So like, yes, uh, <laughs> my pitch is that he does that, but obviously because it's a modern satire, um, rather than doing like an action show, like he used to, where he had the X-Men fight various things, he does a singing competition. And as part oh, of that, right. Oh man. What? Right. If you, okay, carry on, but I'm really annoyed that you've gone first here. <laughs> As part of that, he brings in uh, Dazzler and Lila Cheney, who oh, are the sake. two mutants on that list who are pop stars. Um, and yeah, so basically, I want the X Men to do uh, Mojo vs. Has Talent with uh, Taylor Swift playing Dazzler and Beyonce playing Lila Cheney. And also, I would throw in Lady Gaga in there as Spiral because I think Lady Gaga playing a six armed mutant would be cool. Mm Seb, you seem very upset. Well, at least James has explained who Dazzler and Lila Cheney are, so I don't have to do so. <laughs> uh, what can I just say? Like, Lila Cheney has my favourite powers of any X-Men character. <laughs> oh, yeah, go on. Explain which is Lila that Cheney's powers. She, great. She, her power is that she can teleport, like, interstellar distances. She can't teleport but shorter only than several light years. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So she's really handy for travelling to other planets, but not anywhere else. <laughs> like she can go short distances, but only by going via other planets. <laughs> I like that. I like that. A lot. It is a great power. Okay, set. Seb. So you're you're using Dazzler and Lila Cheney, are you? Yes. So and I need to take you through my thought <laughs> process for this because I started with Dazzler because it, if you look at the list of the characters who are listed and and you exclude everyone who has already been in the films, which is quite a lot, um, you're not left with very many, and Dazzler is the obvious standout option. So my thought was to look for, as as James did, somebody... Uh, well, no, James just went for singers. I went for somebody who can act and sing. Um, you don't know I, Taylor Swift can't act. <laughs> okay, but I landed on um, Hayley Law, who plays uh, Valerie in Riverdale. Um, as Dazzler because she looks and sounds and including in her music like she has stepped straight out of the 70s so she's perfect for Dazzler and that kind of led me on to well how about basically what I'm pitching is it's called Generation X it's nicking the the name of the Generation X comic (laughs) and it's about a bunch of Teenage Mutant characters not Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles um, who <laughs> are all musicians? They're also Dazzler is a solo artist, but also there's there are a couple of different bands, and it's basically it's kind of like Scott Pilgrim meets the X Men. Like they're in bands, but they're mutants, and they end up having to kind of all gather together and save the Earth, even though they're competing at a Battle of the Bands event. And so the various other mutants I picked out, um, also all to be played by cast members from Riverdale. Um, so you would have Lily Reinhardt as Tabitha Smith, aka Boom Boom, who you might remember that from would, Next Wave. That would be a good. That would be a good piece of casting. Uh, Camilla Mendez as Lila Cheney. Uh, Madeline Petch as Paige Guthrie, aka Husk. No, KJ, the wrong. <laughs> Kate, well, that was just more. Who can I? Who was left on the list that I could get? Madeline clearly, Petch to play. Clearly, it was. Uh, KJ Apper as Cannonball. Uh, <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Casey Cott, who uh, plays Kevin as Cypher. Uh, Jordan Calloway, who plays uh, Chuck as Sink, who was actually from Generation X, so that gives us the rights to use the name. And Cole Sprouse as Franklin Richards. There you go. <laughs> 
do you guys want to like team up and thrash out this this because it sounds like you're you're on a very similar page I'm, here. I'm and, like too upset su- with Seb's miscasting of Madeline Petch as Paige Guthrie to work with him. Okay, who 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 would I, I will accept whoever you want Madeline Petch to play. Siren. Otherwise. Okay, fine, I'll take that. Okay, but you can't deny that all the others are spot on, especially Cole Sprouse as Franklin Richards. I don't know about that. I'm, the no, thing I is, basically right? played him in Friends. The thing is, like, my film has Taylor Swift, Beyonce, and Lady Gaga in, and your film has the cast of Riverdale. My, so my I film would is, like to, my film like is directed Joe, by Edgar Wright and is. Top I would like to say to X-Men. Joe, which film do you think is going to have a bigger audience? An X Men uh, film with the Riverdale cast, or an X Men film with three of the planet's biggest pop stars, none of whom well, have I'll... ever been in films before. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you this: um, Seb's version, I think, gets Riverdale season two cancelled. Uh, <laughs> Because literally, if they can't cope with with the Reggie actor being on Thirteen Reasons Why, I don't think they can co- cope with their entire. Yeah, but Joe, <laughs> Joe, you're, you're worried that Riverdale season two will be bad, so cancelling Riverdale season two means yeah. that it never goes shit. Yeah, that's that that is a that is never a possibility. Um, who is willing to introduce into their films like Riverdale style? You want someone from the like eighties, early nineties who is a bit of an icon to come in. Luke Perry and, to play uh, Forge. No, I'm thinking Leah Thompson and Howard the Duck to be some of the other contestants in this. <laughs> I will yes, happily find some space of Leah Thompson. She would fit better in this film than in James's. No question. Sorry, she hangs out with a duck who comes from other universes. She would definitely fit into my interdimensional film. Look, I given that you admitted before we came on air that you hadn't thought about it yet, I put way too much thought into mine to lose this, (laughs) and I'm kicking off. What you've done is overthought it, whereas I've come up with gold on my first (laughs) try. You've underthought it. I'll tell. I'll tell you what else. I um. I I would love to see some kind of superhero property that focuses on like musicians. That's that's something that because I mean like. I d- the the Spider Gwen stuff with the band is really fun early on. Maybe we could we could cross this over with a Spider Gwen concept as well. Yeah, well, interdimensional I, I, travel is already in my film. I just feel like I'm a victim of running order here because if I'd gone first, James's would have sounded really weak and ill thought out by comparison. <laughs> right. Here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm I'm going to do the something I rarely do, which is refuse to pick a winner. You, nah. you guys need to get. You guys need to go off. You need to work together, and you need to find a way to bring your ideas closer together. Maybe there's pop stars, and there's Riverdale cast members, and there's Howard the Duck, and the Spider Gwen. I don't know, but we're. Nope. I feel like we're close, and I'm going to send you off into a room to to thrash out this idea and if you can't then you're both no in in that case I'm gonna see if I can get Guillermo del Toro attached to direct (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I'm gonna get um, Channing Tatum to play Gambit in mine (laughs) (laughs) okay so everyone's a loser this week for the pitch (laughs) but the real winner as we all know the listener Um, but that is it for this week's podcast if you're enjoying the show then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM or your podcast app of choice and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe and you can find more episodes of the show at cinematicmultiverse.com and you can get in touch uh, via Facebook on Twitter at CU underscore podcast or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com thanks for listening and we'll see you next week goodbye goodbye
I used to want to save the world, this beautiful place, but the closer you get, the more you see the great darkness within. I learnt this the hard way a long, long time ago. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Wonder Woman. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 